Welcome to episode 12 of the Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I'm Sara Kochaya, a doctoral researcher at Swansea University. And I'm Patrick Bishop, a senior lecturer also at Swansea University. And as always, we are gathered here today to talk about a couple of things that have been in the news recently, which are relevant to cyber law and security. We should say that, as always, the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers, research partners and or sponsors. I don't know why I put that there, sponsors. Well, we did start off with the charity ah, thing, didn't we? Ah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. Actually, they were thinking about featuring our podcast on um, one of their publications. No, on their tweets. They were going to oh, tweet yeah. about our podcast. I saw that's the email. It. Yeah. Have we seen a large uptake in our download rates? Let's have a quick look because it was last Thursday that they were going to do a tweet about us. And I can confirm that on Thursday, the 17th of October, we peaked. Oh. Look at that. When you say peak... (laughs) (laughs) Well, all things being relative. (laughs) We peaked at 10 plays. On the Thursday. On the Thursday. So, thank you to Cherish D for the share. Very much appreciated. (laughs) So, today we have a couple of things that we want to discuss. So, I thought we might start with... Uh, one of the things you picked, which was the story about age verification for online pornography, which, what was the iterative? Alliterative. 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 Porn pass plans <laughs> ditched. The last I... bit wasn't alliterative, but the porn pass plans was. Is there another word for that that we could, to make it alliterative? Think about it. I'll think about it. Yes. So that's the first thing we want to talk about. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Action Fraud, the National Recording Centre for Cybercrime and Fraud in the UK, because they have been heavily featured in the news over the past couple of months. And I just, um, I I have written a little blog about it, and I'm basically just going to talk a little bit about the ideas that I've written in that blog. We also have a story about the BBC News International website and the dark web. And then we'll end on some free advertising. Good. Excellent. Okay, so what's this whole thing about the... The porn plans pass. (laughs) Porn plans. Porn porn pass plans. (laughs) Ditched. (laughs) I'm trying to think of another P for Uh... synonym for ditched. But anyway. (laughs) So Um, what happened there then? Okay, so there's an act the Digital Economy Act 2017. Right. And part three of that act created the the legal structure for what was called an age verification, advanced age verification. So essentially the, the rationale was to try and prevent, as far as possible, children um, gaining access to pornographic material online. And of course some sites require a credit card yeah. Uh, before you can access the main site, um, not necessarily to pay, just as a, a, a proxy for age verification, on the assumption only eighteen year olds plus have credit cards. But obviously, there's a lot. So I'm told there's a lot of <laughs> freely available um, pornographic uh, material, and you know, wouldn't necessarily be illegal, at least in English law. So you wouldn't, you know, you'd be, the adult pornography wouldn't fit the definition of extreme pornography um so it would be illegal to, to view uh, sorry legal to view but obviously there's a policy imperative there to try and prevent children from viewing that material and it's been linked this issue of children viewing pornography has been linked in lots of psychology studies early childhood studies to certain problems so you know unfeasible and unrealistic expectations of of sexual activity and what it involves, poor body image. Obviously, I'm stereotyping you, but pornographic actors tend to have a certain body type. 
Um, and if the, the impressionable child who's doing that doesn't fulfill those, or doesn't meet those standards, then obviously they can lead to body image problems, um, uh, etc. So that was the, the, the rationale, I think fairly sensible approach to, to take. And so there was various iterations of this plan. I think it was first talked about by David Cameron. Remember him? David Cameron, um, when Who? he was Prime Minister, some politician. Um, and uh, there was various iterations, but the latest one, which was supposed to go ahead fairly soon, involved, well, it, again, it wasn't entirely certain, but there was two basic options. So there was a system whereby you could go to, say, for example, a post office uh, with proof of age, driving license, passport, etc., pay a fee and then they would give you you know, your porn pass which would probably just be username and password so you could access material and obviously there would have been an obligation on all pornography online providers to put in place these advanced verif- aid verification systems so that would involve an actual physical interaction face to face yes that would require an individual, like a person, to verify the age of the individual. Yeah, so you, you right, you go up to the post office counter. There's my passport. There's my passport. Can I have a porn pass, please? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure how many would have. You know, you might. You know, if you live in Swansea, you might travel to Bristol to find a post office there. Um, <laughs> I there is there is a fully functioning with all of the services uh, um, post office in Port Talbot. Okay. Yeah, they even do like the passports and stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, you don't need to worry about that any longer <laughs> because it's been dropped. That was one. <laughs> Phew! I am so relieved. <laughs> so relieved. So relieved. So relieved. Uh, the other option was a use of a third-party verification system. And the number of companies available that do this. So it's an online system. And again, you uh, um, the finer details escape me, but it would have been something like scan a copy of your passport, a driving license, uh, sort of pu- publicly issued or issued by the state document proving your age. And then again, pay a fee. These companies would be commercial enterprises or are commercial enterprises. And again, I presume there would be the, the same portal page on these websites and you would use that username and password or a digit, multi-digit code or whatever. So that was the plans. There was, in the literature, in the academic literature and, you know, the most sort of journalistic type techie literature about the problems with that and really the how easy it would be to undermine that system. So there was a... a sort of principled objection and that related to privacy concerns and um, so bearing in mind that the the material in question would be lawful to to download uh, you know if you had a third party provider and the ones who were suggested who might take on this role were very keen to express uh, stress how sophisticated their encryption methods were etc but you could never rule out the problem of someone hacking into their uh, servers downloading a, a list of people with porn passes and either using that for more nefarious means such as blackmail or publishing them online etc yeah. a similar thing happened a while ago with that is it called ashley madison the the dating site for people having yeah. affairs yeah you know, that's the sort of issue and with donald daters did you hear about that no donald daters <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was a dating website for people who are supporters of Donald Trump so they can meet each other right yeah but uh, it was a bit awkward because uh, I think pretty much the details of they were just unencrypted and available for any mediocre hacker to uh, extract I don't know what to say to that (laughs) I'm guessing if it was set up by a Donald Trump supporter (laughs) They're not known for their high levels of intelligence, shall we say. No comment. No, okay. <laughs> it's not a bit of satire there for you. <laughs> so, um, uh, yes. Yeah, so concerns about yeah. security. Yeah, you have to trust this third party. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and of course, 
also as well, obviously, in the, in the context of the GDPR, privacy concerns have become even more apparent. So that was the principal reason for those who objected to the, the system, or the proposed system. And there was a more sort of practical problem with it. And in a nutshell, it would have been very, very easy to circumvent the system. Um, so, you know, the obvious one would be to use a VPN, virtual private network, pick your jurisdiction, pick the United States, pick any jurisdiction which doesn't have a similar age verification system and access the site um, from that jurisdiction. And it would obviously utterly undermine um, yeah. the, 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 the purpose. Now, of course, it, even if that, that is a, would have been an undoubted problem, but some of the research I've seen in it has also indicated that a lot of children actually access pornography accidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quite a surprisingly significant number of people, children who access porn, do so accidentally. And at least the age verification system would at least remove that possibility. Yeah. Um, because you you know you'd have needed to access it using the verification code or the username and password, etc. But in terms of stopping um, I can't think of the word. Uh, determined youngsters from mm-hmm. accessing it, then it would have been, you know, very easy to circumvent. And I think, generally speaking, VPNs and what they do is becoming far more, or the view that they exist is becoming far more common. So you know, a few years ago, unless you were within the sort of IT techie um, role within your job or whatever. You would have known what a VPN is, but I don't think there was a general awareness of what they were and what they did. Um, but now I think they are becoming more and more common. You know, for example, purely anecdotal evidence, I watch YouTube videos a lot. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, you know, not all the time, but you you quite often get you know, the, the, the 20 second, 30 second advertisement mm-hmm. when you're waiting for the skip ad button to appear. Um, they were advertised, various types of VPNs were being advertised on that and they were always sort of sold themselves as you know a privacy protection tool, etc. So I think anonymous browsing now, is the, the, the skill level needed for that is, is dropping all the time, so that would have been a big issue. So those are the problems with the system. So I think in summary, I th- generally speaking, I think most reasonable people think it's a good idea to try and restrict children's, young children's access to pornography. But the method that was used was problematic. Um, and so recently the government has announced, um, so the, the Culture Secretary, Nikki Morgan, I think it just announced that she's not standing for the Parliament the next time. Mm-hmm. Is it Nikki Morgan? Anyway, you can check that and delete it from the edit if that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I will just get one of those voices, you know, like you get on the trains. Yeah. This train is delayed due to yeah. cow on the line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, insert, insert the name of the MP. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was the, the culture secretary was definitely Nicky Morgan. Right. I'm just not sure if, if there was a whole tranche of MPs yesterday announced that they weren't standing for the election. And I think Nicky Morgan was one of them. But anyway, don't quote me on that. But anyway, that doesn't matter. She announced um, that uh, they were scrapping the plans for the advanced age verification. And basically they said, well, we're still dealing with this problem. We're not ignoring it or or not. You know, it's not not as if we're no longer prioritising it. But they said they would just incorporate it into the online harms regulatory scheme, which we discussed, I think it was the last Last podcast. Incidentally, whether it'll see the light of day now, but the last Queen's speech, a week or so ago, whenever it was, it was actually in the speech was plans for uh, online harms mm-hmm. bill. So they have decided now if their method of doing something about this this problem is to incorporate it within the online harms system. Um, and of course, depending on what happens post-December the 12th, post the general election, who knows what will happen with that. Um, I would have thought that online harms is a a cross party issue that I think whether Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, whoever, would be something you would probably support. But who knows what will happen mm-hmm. with that? Mm-hmm. But I think the problem with that is the is the online harms approach is is fairly reactive in the sense you know there's the code of practice that 
web you uh, web providers have to comply with in order to fulfill their statutory duty of care. And it talks about things as we discussed last time, things like uh, a regulator and complaints to the regulator, your terms and conditions aren't clear enough, you have to have a complaints mechanism. Because when you use the phrase complaints mechanism, that's obviously reactive. Uh, whereas the age verification system, for all its flaws, at least in terms of its intention, was supposed to be re- um, preventative, preventing children from access to material in the first place. Obviously, if a parent or whoever can then complain because that you know this site is allowing access to uh, allowing children to obtain access, then that's a reactive measure. So it hasn't gone away, but I think it might be a you know the the regulatory scheme as it is first in, envisaged in the white paper might have to be modified to some extent to incorporate age verification mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um, mechanisms. So that's where we are. Mm, that's interesting. Plans for porn past debt. <laughs> Have you thought of an alliterative fourth word yet? Um, we could say plug pulled on. Oh, very good. Porn pass. Yes. Plug pulled <laughs> on plans for porn pass. There we are. There we, are. Good. we got there in the end. Yes. Try saying that after the food drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are, I think... We may have a couple of students of the cybercrime module listening to this podcast. Right. And I don't know whether you've covered the Obscene Publications Act yet. We did it on Monday. There we are. So I was thinking that part of the reason why the law currently perhaps isn't very effective at dealing with exactly that scenario, because strictly speaking, the Obscene Publications Act... If I understand correctly, I, I do need to go over these notes again. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the benefit of the tape, Sarah will be delivering a series of seminars on the cybercrime <laughs> module on the legal control of pornography fairly soon. <laughs> it, it, it usually, it, they are very well attended, Good. I must say. They are usually the best attended <laughs> seminars of the year. So, technically speaking, age verification is not an explicit requirement. No. But... If there is no age verification, a publisher is opening themselves up to the potential for liability under the Section 1 offence yeah. of, of this <coughs> Publications Act. So, but the, the, there were... Why is that, Sarah? <laughs> Can you explain why that's the case? Um, because the, the definition of something... Of obscen- obscenity. Oh, obscenity. 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 I, obscenity. There we are. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> was established in a case, and it was the case, the judge was... Chief Justice Cockburn. Cockburn, yeah. which I find hilarious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, in this, uh, in this case, uh, Crown and Hickling, so the test is... Whether or not something is obscene is whether it's capable of depraving and corrupting um, the... Likely audience. The likely audience, yeah. yeah. So so there's lots of... This wording, the way this test is set out, is such that, first of all, it very much depends on whether the likely... Who is the likely audience? And then whether that that likely audience is capable of being depraved and corrupted by the material. Which, in the case, like thinking about these porn sites, if they have no age verification, then the likely audience will inc- include children yeah. who, um, you know, to the reasonable person, would likely be depraved and corrupted yeah. by a certain type. And obviously of a child is more likely to be depraved or corrupted by pornographic material than would be the case with a, an adult. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the problem with the law at the moment is that, actually, procedurally, the way these cases first you've you've got to got you, you have to have the evidence. Yeah. Um. That so it is reactive in that way that you were talking about earlier. You have to know. You do have to have the evidence in the sense that you have to have seen the website. Yeah. And form the judgment, if you were the CPS lawyer, that it it would meet the threshold of obscene. But the case law has suggested, or not suggested, has said that you don't actually have to prove that children have looked at the material, yeah. just that they could access it. Yeah. So in that sense, it could be 
preventative, but if the the publisher is based overseas, then there's very little that can be done uh, in terms of taking action against them in the in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, so that's the problem. You know, basically, I've seen Publications Act is a mechanism that was developed in the offline world that's really struggled to cope with the online era we now find ourselves in. You know, in the old days where there was a, a grotty, you know, adult bookstore or sex shop where you went to acquire your pornography, then it worked because you would just target the the, the owners of the shop, etc. Yeah, yeah. Because when someone is, you know, when a, you know, a site is based on servers overseas, then there's very little that can be done. Mm. And you might think, well, you can extradite them. <laughs> but there's a reason that these servers or these companies are based in a certain country, because what they're doing is lawful <coughs> in that country. So you wouldn't get very far with seeking that extradition. Mm. Um, but there has been some cases where these people who've been, you know, involved in the publication so there's been people who've been based in the uk who have uh, been involved in editing producing um, videos for example um, and then obviously have sent them back to the united states in order to be published online and because you have that coincidence of images published in the uk because they're accessible on the web in the uk which cross the threshold of obscene plus someone who's taken significant steps in relation to publishing or editing that material in the UK, then you can take action yeah. against them. But it, it's, it's a very... So I guess my question is, how, is, how would an age verification, an enhanced age verification, be any better than this? Because, again, if the publishers are outside jurisdiction, technically you can take the website down. But can't we do that now? Not... Not on the current regime, and um, there's, there's no legal mechanism which allows you, you know, the the state to force a, a, a ISP to disable access to a site. There might be, under the online harms regime, they they know they're going to use fines, and there's also issues there about whether well, we use ISP blocking, so you know, they, or disruption of business activities, mm-hmm. so prevent, uh, stop. PayPal, for example, supporting a platform or domain name registration supporting the platform. And ultimately, the so the nuclear option would be ISP blocking. So that site, because it, it doesn't fulfill the, the statutory code of conduct, would then be unavailable in the mm-hmm. UK. But at the moment, there's no power to do that. It's usually done on a voluntary basis. So a, a website will be contacted and we'll say, you know, you're hosting material of this nature. Traditionally, it's been not pornography, but online radicalisation material, terrorist-related material, etc. And they've usually just taken it down, not necessarily for the threat of legal sanction, just because they're being good citizens. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's... And even under the Obscene Publications Act, you prosecute the person. It doesn't mean to say that the site doesn't remain active. You know, you, you just... Pro- prosecute that person who happens to be in this uh, um, country and mm. find them or send them to prison or whatever, but that doesn't change any the fact that yeah. that site is yeah. still yeah. is still available. Now, of course, they might take steps to put in place age verification as a result of a prosecution of one of their employees, but that wouldn't necessarily follow uh, from that. And there's no power, as I said, at least that I'm aware, there's no power that can you know, force... Uh, ISPs to block material at the moment. So, you know, and of course, if you used ISP blocking to com- try and prevent children from accessing pornographic material under the online harms regulatory, regulatory system, then that's probably too broad because then you're preventing legitimate adult uses of that material. Now you can debate whether, you know, adults should be viewing pornography or not, but at least in terms of the law, as long as it's not indecent images of children or it's extreme pornography then it's perfectly legal to view it to view it Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so you would be you you know you would be if you just went with the blunt tool of isp blocking then you would be preventing legitimate users from accessing that material what you could do thinking about it if isp blocking is a tool in this new regulator's armory and 
they are given the express role among many others to ins- try to ensure that children are accessing sites. If a particular website doesn't have age verification, then there's obviously a conversation to be had there with that site, and you can you you know obviously you would do a facilitator. You say, oh, we notice you don't have age verification. Could you do that for us? And then, of course, if they don't, then you have the threat of ISP blocking, uh, etc. So that's how you know this age verification issue, or more broadly stopping children or trying to minimise the risk of children ex- being exposed to pornography, might work in in under the new regime whenever that. Happens. Maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So there we are. Yeah. That makes what sense. Was it again? Porn. Plug. Pulled. Pulled on porn past plans. <laughs> Very good. Uh, okay, so our next story is about action fraud. Um, so action fraud are the National Reporting Centre for computer misuse, so cyber-dependent crimes like hacking, DOS attacks, and also for fraud, which is one type of computer-dependent crime. Computer-enabled crime. Enabled, thank you. Enabled crime. So, firstly... Sorry, this is my own ignorance. Yes. But action fraud applies to all forms of fraud, doesn't it? Not just... Yes, Online that's fraud. right. That's Although right. I presume you might know the statistics on this, that the vast majority of frauds these days are carried out via online means, or is that not true? That is probably true. Right. But action fraud only captures what is reported. Right. And in the slice of crime which is reported, I don't think that, well, at least the data I've seen, that does not. Okay, that's, uh, that's that interesting. That is not true. Uh, the vast majority is still traditional as what we would call traditional offline. Okay. Um, although I would also argue that that is a false dichotomy increasingly. Yeah. So, uh, but that is for another podcast, I yes. think. <laughs> or uh, we yeah. like a good false dichotomy, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> we love one. <laughs> um, so, well, I, I should actually start by saying that this is quite close to my heart because I have, over the past four years, been analysing reports of computer misuse and fraud that were reported to action fraud from within four police forces in the UK. So the UK has 42 or 43, I think it's 42 police forces. So I've got a a sample of four police forces, which are all of the Welsh ones. Everything that was reported to action fraud over two years. And I have been looking at who the victims are, what are the crime types, and I've been particularly interested in in those victims that reported more than once so the repeat Repeat. victims Mm. um so i was a bit disappointed (laughs) when last month uh last month no it was two months ago now there was a an undercover report by the times which led with headlines that included and i quote Fraud victims failed by police and vulnerable people labelled as morons and computer scoring system decides which cases are investigated. So these were three of the Times headlines. The reporter was hired by Action Fraud as a call handler. So Action Fraud was being run by a company called Concentrix. So he was hired by Concentrix to to be a call handler and the call centre was up in uh, Scotland. And basically the, the, the report highlighted the what what I think you could describe as inadequate training that the new staff received and it included a bunch of undercover footage hidden he had a, hid, a hidden camera w- which demonstrated a number of cases of fairly unprofessional attitude from the action fraud slash concentric staff oh. call handlers so you had people being very disparaging in their attitude of the victim reports that they were receiving. Um, you know, just, uh, yeah. Anyway, a, a range of different attitudes. Right. And, and and one of the managers, in fact, had publicly tweeted a number of things, which is where the morons, morons quote okay. comes from. It actually comes from a tweet from, from one of these managers. So I guess... 
like I said earlier, I've actually written a very short blog about this because I think... And where, where's that blog? <laughs> it is on our site, on which our, is, oh. yeah, cyberlawandsociety.org, which is also where our podcast is. Uh, well, it's not hosted on that site, but... Uh, it's available. It's available that, through, through, yeah. So I guess for, for in, in, my, in my view, the report highlighted a number of things that are quite shocking and that need to be dealt with. But at the same time, it's also muddled the waters a bit because it, in some respects, it hasn't fully captured what action fraud really is mm. and where does the responsibility lie with respect to the investigation of these crimes and also the uh, the response to the victim. Mm. So I think we need to also... Well, I think that's yeah. often a problem with these sort of undercover journalistic exposés um, that... It's not news. You know, action fraud employees very professional. You know, <laughs> action fraud employees provide a brilliant service. You know, so it's almost as if they're looking for something negative, obviously. And if something's negative, there to find them. Fair enough, they're obviously entitled to report on that. But we do wonder, you know, how the the isolated cases that they might pick to prove that you know lack of professionals and lack of training, etc. How representative of the organization as a whole are they so i think you always have to have a health, healthy dose of skepticism when reading journalistic pieces of, of this sort yeah. that's not to say that there's not I'm not saying there's not a problem yeah there might yeah. be when they're saying we don't you know it's not necessarily as bad as any journalistic output would suggest yeah i, I think there are there were clear institutional failures that were captured um, and I don't think for a second that that we should take away from that. That said, the introduction of action fraud along with the introduction of direct reporting by a number of in, in um, a number of industry bodies has has happened since 2012 uh, from 2012 um, the, the this national reporting system has been rolled out. And that has massively increased by more than 100% mm. the amount of reports yeah. that the police receive. Okay, I, I've got a little chart on the, on the blog. I can show it to you. Okay. It is, it is pretty stark when you, yeah. when you look so at the numbers. So the purple is prior to action fraud and then the, yes. the three colours are... And then the three colours. It's great got... podcast material this is. It is, isn't yes. it? <laughs> <laughs> um and, and that was one of the reasons why the National Reporting Centre was introduced in the first mm. place, was because there was a review that came to the conclusion that we needed a national reporting system so that to, to improve reporting yeah. and to make sure reporting was consistent across and, all of the forces. you need to know the extent of a problem before you can deal with the problem. So Exactly. At the very least, it's useful in that regard. So, so that that is one aspect which I think is worth keeping in mind. The reason why this mm. has been introduced in the first place. The other thing that I think it's important to note is that action fraud is a call center. It's not. It's nothing more than a call center. Yes, they are de- dealing with victims of crime, and so they need to be professional, and they mm. need to provide. You know, there's an element of empathy that is expected and Mm. some of the behaviour was totally unacceptable. But to comment on the the police response based on what you see within the call centre, which is subcontracted to an American company, multinational company, and is probably employing people at a very low Salary. Salaries, salaries, yeah. to 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 consider to to judge the entirety of the response based on this mm. would be to misrepresent mm. the response and and um, the system as it actually functions. So lacking in nuance, then, would be your summary of the, the report. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think so. And then there's there's things that you know the report that I think are are important that need to be addressed, which the report also didn't because also they they couldn't have which is 
the extent to which the data which is collected by action fraud is adequate mm. for the police to to not only investigate but also respond to the vulnerability mm. of the victims mm. because if if the data isn't doesn't enable the police to discern who is vulnerable and who isn't mm. then they can't provide that service yeah. so i think that's something that definitely needs to be addressed the issue of concentrics and its failures i mean action fraud has had two major crises in its since its inception and both of those crises happened as a result of the subcon the, the contracting company imploding basically right. so there is definitely something to be said about some of these public services being subcontracted out and how um the extent to which these companies are then held accountable for their failures and presumably they concentric was it concentric concentrics was um, yeah presumably they got yeah. the contract as a, following a a sort of procurement process a bidding process yes and of course then there's always the the danger that they'll come in at a low price in order to gain the contract and sometimes at an unrealistically low price so you know sometimes things are reassuringly expensive and and the, I don't think it's just this. There's been other issues with that in the past with these sort of what you might call public-private partnerships. Yeah, and and sometimes I feel that these institutional failures also end up obfuscating the 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 failure of actually of the actual what what the victims actually get at the other mm. end. So if you if we focus all of our attention in sorting out these institutional problems, which we need to sort out, I think that is absolutely needs to happen. But at the same time, you can't just do that. You can't mm. just get rid of concentrics and get another company yeah. uh, because that's not fully going to resolve all of the challenges of, of yeah. you know, dealing with well, cybercrime and fraud. I think like so, many things in public policy circles, it comes down to finite resources, I would guess. And even with the best will in the world, the police can't investigate every potential crime, every alleged crime, or every real crime. Um, so I guess that's the issue as well. If people feel that the service they get from action fraud is one thing, but then if they feel that they they were entitled to a, a, a police response and they didn't get any, um, then obviously that's really disappointing for them but also the bigger picture is obviously with finite resources the police can't investigate every potential crime um, and particularly in this I think is it the, the City of London police are uh, yeah um, so action fraud when when the reports are received by action fraud they are then uh, sent through to the NFIB which is the National Fraud Intelligence Bureau which is part of the City of London yeah. police and it is at this stage that the decision is made as to whether or not a case has sufficient leads mm. of inquiry to be pursued. And presumably then they would often pass those on to a force where the crime Precisely. was committed or where the victim was. Yeah, it's yes. generally, um, the investigation is generally passed on to, mm. uh, it, you. The first, there's like a, a tier of decision making oh, okay. and f first it starts with, not where the victim is, but where there may maybe the perpetrator right. is. Um, if there is no perpetrator, then uh, where the victim is. Oh, okay. It depends on the sort of tiered approach. Then, yeah, if you, yeah. You, which, which force gets to right. to investigate it? Yeah. So, so that was that. Um, I, I will leave it at that. I mean, I've I've written this up anyway. So, if people want to know more, they they can read that. It's a quick read. It's only about ten minute read. It's probably about thousand five hundred words. So. You don't need to read it now. If you just, if you <laughs> that's podcast. true. That is true. Um, yeah. So that's that. So what was our third story? Our was, third story was, was the dark web. Is a quick one. Yeah. Not so much about the dark web as the Tor browser. Right. Because as our you know regular listeners, all four of them, <laughs> will know that there's a you know the Tor and the dark web are different. Things. Obviously, you use Tor to access the dark web, but they're not the same thing. So it is a quick one. It's basically, in a nutshell, the BBC, the BBC News Service, have now published a dark web version of um, their international news pages. 
Um, so it, there's a new URL being set up with a dot onion domain name. Is that right? Domain name is the right phrase. Yeah, domain name. Yeah. This is lower level and upper levels. I don't quite understand, but anyway, dot onion, and 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 as you might know, you know you you if you click on a dot onion link, in the normal web browser, then it, it will not be re displayed. But if you copy and paste that URL into the the Tor browser, then you gain access to the the site. So, in a sense, you're yeah, right. Then you know the the BBC have now you know. It, moved or at least you know duplicated their efforts on the dark web but i think this and i've looked at the the bbc so i went on the tour this afternoon looked at the the tour version the dark onion version and it is identical to the international version that you you know if you're in the states or anywhere outside of the uk if you go on the bbc website the first story was the impeachment inquiry in in the us but i think this nicely illustrates Tor browser, the Tor browser, as a double-edged sword. So obviously when people think of the Tor browser, if they think about it at all, then they associate it with the dark web, the dark net, where all sorts of unspeakable criminality um, goes on. If you cast your mind to know how many podcasts ago it was when we talked about the Matthew Fowler case, yeah. um, you know, the horrific activity that went on there. But this is the other side of the sword, if you like, with the other side of the coin, if I'm not mixing my metaphors, <laughs> um, in that the Tor browser gives you that anonymity. And if you happen to be based in a country where there's you know, heavy censorship, you know, so the, the Great Firewall of China, for example, then if you want to access a non-state view of an issue, if you want to communicate in a way which might be seen as, you know, um, actions of dissidents in that country then the Tor browser is the way to go because it's very hard to uh, snoop on or, or to intercept uh, any communications via the Tor browser so that's the other side you know, the, which is the ethos that the Tor browser people organization now want to portray you, mm -hmm. you know as an anti-censorship freedom of speech freedom of protest and dissident um, um, tool and this illustrates that because, you know, for example, China, obviously, Iran, Vietnam have all various times blocked access to BBC platforms, BBC website, etc. So this now people mm. will have in mm -hmm. these, you know, totalitarian or close to totalitarian regimes will have access to more impartial, yeah, balanced news coverage. Yeah. See, I, I somewhat worry, actually, that people can be lured into a false sense of security when they're using these tools for purposes that we consider to be valid and, yeah. and, and sort of... Be because having the Tor browser installed on your machine and means that the communication itself can't, you know, you, you want... You, you can't be intercepted yeah. or snooped on or and whatever. You, and you don't know where it's come from yeah. or whatever. But I have seen reports of fairly sophisticated and targeted nation state level attacks yeah. on individuals for the purpose of snooping on their communications mm. etc in certain you know in 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 certain places yeah. and it's it's incredible the extent to which some organizations will go to infiltrate human rights activists etc yeah. etc et yeah, so this, essentially the state can use the Tor browser and can access the dark web as well as yeah, they, they individual can, but actors. They can, but they can also, if they've got remote access to your machine, it doesn't mm. matter yeah. if you're on the Tor browser. You know, if they've got a keylogger piece of malware on your machine and they can literally see what you're typing, see your screen, take screenshots, mm -hmm. all of that, yeah. it becomes... The the extent to which people can protect themselves in in some places against uh, being snooped, <laughs> yeah, at and um, and and probably most likely down the line arrested, yeah, uh, I I think is is still considerable, mm. you know, regardless of the anonymity of the internet. I think when you when you're facing a, a state. If the state wants to get you, yeah, <laughs> I think you're uh, 
Europe struggle street. Yeah. You mean the deep state? <laughs> um, no, no, but so... yes, I mean, I do, I accept that point. Yeah. But in these countries, China, I know how many, you know, it's over a billion, isn't it? I'm not sure if they've reached two billion yet, but obviously a huge population. And of course, yeah, they, obviously they can't survey every single computer. No. Um, it would just be an impossible task. But at least this, the Tor browser gives you that option of not at least alerting them mm. to your activity so they don't start snooping. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so obviously, it's, as you said, very eloquently, it's not a panacea in terms of privacy, in terms of avoiding um, state snooping. <laughs> but it's certainly better than nothing. Um, you know, in sense of, you know, it, if you are if you are lucky enough not to already be under surveillance, um, then you're not going to sort of trigger any red flags yeah, um, yeah. by accessing or trying to access certain materials, um, etc. Online, so I think it's a you know it's a you obviously it's not a silver bullet, it's not a panacea, but I think it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's definitely worth downloading Tor off a different machine. Yeah, sticking it on a USB stick. On a USB stick. stick, yeah. Because if you're your ISP can see what you're downloading, including the Tor browser, so that that in itself could that trigger. that is an issue as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, it might be you know you've downloaded the Tor browser in one of these you know um, totalitarian regimes, and you know you then get a visit. Yeah. Uh, from the the you know, the local intelligence services, the police asking you well, why you you know if you got if you got nothing to hide, why have you downloaded the Tor browser? Exactly. Mm. Um, so there is these issues as well, but you know just because it's not perfect doesn't mean it's not a step in yeah, the right yeah, direction. Yeah. I think would be Definitely. my uh, my view. It would be a good example to give students actually of a, a use of Tor that is uh, that is legitimate. Legitimate. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's it. I think. Um, Free advertising. Free advertising, yeah. and then and then we're done. So free advertising. I have been, I've been on the edge of my seat right for the past few weeks, following a podcast produced by Georgia Cat, presented by Jamie Bartlett, called "The Missing Crypto Queen," and this is a podcast which is it's a BBC production. It's um it's available on BBC Sounds, um, and probably other podcast providers. I would have thought. I'm not sure, actually. It might Usually, be. Usually, when they advertise things like that, the BBC will say available from BBC Sound or wherever you obtain your podcast. Yes, or... some of them. Not all of them are. But anyway, BBC but, Sound but, is yeah, free, so why not, why not yeah. download it? <laughs> um, and you can, you, do, mm. you can also listen to them online mm. uh, if, you, if you search The Missing Crypto Queen. So, this is a eight-part series, uh, seven parts have aired, we're waiting for the final series, um, with great expectations, I might add. Well, you are, I've never <laughs> listened to it. I think <laughs> after, after this you will, you will want to listen to it. So, The Missing Crypto Queen is an investigation into a phenomenon, which is a, I think, probably described this, um, well, allegedly, it's a it's a huge mass marketing fraud, right? Okay, of a of a product which is branded as one coin, a cryptocurrency called one coin. Okay. And what this series does is follow a number of individuals who have lost a lot of money, and interviews uh, along the way individuals who were selling one coin individuals who bought one coin and it was one of those pyramid style scheme. things so ponzi type scheme yeah allegedly yeah okay allegedly yeah <laughs> um, i haven't even listened to it so. <laughs> don't sue me in defamation uh, <laughs> yes so jamie bartlett and the team find all of these people who were involved with one coin they they lay bare the extent the amount of money that one coin has raised money which is now mostly gone nobody knows where okay the crypto queen itself is a reference to the person who was the face of one coin which was so-called dr ruja ignatova so dr ignatova was she promoted one coin she was 
one of the founders of OneCoin, um, allegedly, anyway. <laughs> and she has now gone missing. Okay. She's gone missing. Nobody knows where she where she is. Her brother has been uh, arrested. In the process of their investigation, Bartlett and the team also uncovered that Dr. Ruja herself has a criminal conviction in her past, which was obviously not for fraud in right, Germany, okay. which was not known publicly. They describe... The, the, the branding of OneCoin is, was incredibly effective. So Was it at the time when Bitcoin was taken off and was you know, seemingly doubling in value every few days? Yes, it, yeah. it, it was... OneCoin was promoted as the future of finance and it was very sophisticated in terms of the way in which they sold themselves. They sold themselves as, as uh, their mission was to empower the people who who were unbanked um you know people in countries who have no bank accounts and and uh, so so they they put they place themselves in a sort of as as uh, disruptors of the financial institutions mm. that rule the world yeah um and but but there are many many facets to this scheme and it is it is incredible and it is incredible that she's basically, so far, absolutely got away with it. Assuming she's done something illegal in the first place. Indeed, yeah. allegedly. Yes. But, I mean, I will leave it up to you yeah, <laughs> to well, make up your mind. Form your, own, your own judgment. Yeah. Okay, I won't ask you to say yeah. any more. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll listen to it. I, I yes. will listen to it. And I, it is, I, I mean, I, in terms of the production as well, yeah. it is excellent. It's it's very well put together. Is it uh, as smooth as the production that we use? It, is, it, is, it, is it that, that level of perfectionism? <laughs> I might say it's slightly uh, better production really? value and, than, than, you know than that our, our podcast. Ours is the podcast that all other podcasts <laughs> aspire to. So that's Indeed. High, pre- high praise. and on that note I think we can say goodbye until next time goodbye bye I have to speak up because in the last episode your the levels were quite different between yours and your voice and my voice. Took calling me a loud mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say. No. Under the Yay. under the regime. Shall I answer it? <laughs> you you may have to tell them that they're being recorded. That's Katie Vaughan. <laughs> Hello. I'm recording. <laughs> The podcast. What to stop it ringing? <laughs> okay, see you later. <laughs>